Thanks, Robin. If you've got a Bible handy, it'd be good to keep that passage in front of you. And there's an outline on your leaflet there, just shows you where we're going. Well, there are things um, that are part and parcel of everyday life, aren't there? That we almost do with that, almost without thinking of them. Uh, things that we say every day. If you think just about the first hour of each day, there's a whole bunch of things happen. You know, brushing your teeth, getting dressed, hopefully. Uh, you might pray, read your Bible, check Facebook, check Manchester City score, not necessarily in that order. No one tells you to do them, uh, but they just sort of happen. It's like queuing, isn't it? Those Brits are really good at queuing. It just kind of happens. And there are repeated words and phrases that become part of our everyday life. Um, it's like me with cups of tea. Growing up, I thought that Colin was my middle name and that my first name was put the kettle on. Well, today we're looking at this command in chapter 6, verse 5. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, with everything about you. Now, I think we hear that and we think... Well, that sounds all right. That sounds like a good idea. I'm up for that. But how on earth do we do that? All of that. We're going to see today how to do that by knowing who God is, by remembering what he's done for us, and all that leading us to obey him uh, with what we do in our everyday. So it's not just the mundane things that are everyday, so that our love of God his word and obeying him becomes part and parcel of our routine, part and parcel of our rhythm of everyday life. So as I said, there's an outline in your leaflets, and we'll start with motivation for love is who God is. Our motiv- motivation for love is who God is. To recap where we're up to, we're with Moses doing his sort of last hurrah speech to the people of Israel. The, the River Jordan's lapping at their feet. They can see the promised land they're going to go into on the other side. A destination they've been waiting 40 years, 40 years for. Life is about to get really, really good. And Moses is setting them up for a big transition. He's reminding them, reminding them of their past failures, but more importantly, of God's faithfulness and grace to them in their past failures. And God's grace is to be their motivation. So verse 2. God gave these commands so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. So the way they are to fear, fear means to have the appropriate awe and recognition of God as their God. Uh, The way they're to do that in all generations coming was to keep his commands. And the consequence of doing that, verse 3, it would go well for them. They'd increase greatly and be provided with more than they'd ever dreamed of. More than they needed. So God gives his commands and decrees. Not just so we've got to live by a bunch of rules. God gives his commands and his decrees to care for his people. His commands and decrees are a gift So chapter 6, verse 24, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God. Why? So that we might always prosper and be kept alive 
as is the case today. So God's rules are his way of looking out for us, helping us out, giving us the benefit of his all-knowing wisdom. See, God is not a killjoy. God knows what kills our joy. God's not a killjoy. He knows what kills our joy and what gives us joy. And his laws and decrees are the rails which we travel on to keep that joy. Then in verse 4, there's, uh, he basically says, listen up, pay attention to this. Listen to this intently in a way that you're going to obey it. He says, hear, O Israel, pay special attention to the fact that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, I don't know about you, but every week I get two kinds of text messages. Uh, there's one on the screen, I think. I get one telling me I've got an undelivered parcel that I never ordered. And I get one telling me I've got unpaid road toll fees, despite having never been to Victoria. And all I need to do is just click that dodgy link and that will sort it all out. I sometimes even call me and leave me a nice voicemail. At least I think it's nice because it's in Mandarin and I don't speak it, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Now, of course, I ignore those messages and I block the contact because of who the message is from. It's from a scammer, so I disregard it. But if the text is from one of you or from Sharon, my wife, or from Paul Harrison, my boss, I'll pay attention. I'll listen to the message or read the message and I'll respond because of who it's from. So key to Israel going into the land, keeping these commands, obeying God, choosing life, key to that is understanding who God is. And our motivation to love God in obedience comes from knowing who God is and what he's like. So what does it mean that the Lord our God, the Lord is one? It's tricky to translate directly into English from the Hebrew, but from the context it means only God is God. And God within himself has integrity, as in he's reliably consistent in who he is and what he does in his goodness and holiness. And it means God alone is worthy of treating as God. Now, we've been hanging around monotheism, the idea that there's only one God, for thousands of years. It's the more normal idea for us. And even atheists don't argue that there are not lots of gods. They argue that there's, no, there's not a god, don't they? Monotheism is normal for us, even if we don't believe it. But the world in which Moses is speaking into, the accepted norm was that there were loads of gods. Each nation and people group had their own variety and worshipped and served them in a sort of transactional way for various needs. And this is what Israel had experienced in Egypt, where they came from before the wilderness, and that's what the scene was where they were heading to in the promised land. So what Moses is saying here, the Lord God is one, is revolutionary. And at the time, very, very distinctive. God is one. See, for the nations in the promised land, um, if your God, say you were worshipping Baal, if he wasn't working out for you, well, you could kind of sideline him for a bit and worship his dad God instead. Or if you needed to get your washing dry, you could pray to the weather god or something like that. 
That was basically how it works. And these gods were fickle and enslaving. You know, if they did work well, then you'd feel the need to sort of serve and pray to them more. If they didn't work, well, then you'd feel the need to... Do you see how it's just enslaving and fickle? But God is unchanging. He's reassuringly consistent. God is God in all circumstances, always faithful, always merciful, always loving, always just. And because he has that integrity of character, we can be sure that his commands are good for us. His commands for Israel uh, back then are designed to ensure they don't lose sight of God and how good he is. They're designed to give them a good life, long life in the land that goes well for them. And they're so good, there's so much wisdom and goodness to glean from God's ways from then, even today, in a completely different culture and circumstance. We can still get heaps from them, can't we? For example, imagine our society. If you think back to the Ten Commandments John talked about last week, imagine our society if there was no adultery if people didn't even think lustfully about somebody they weren't married to. Or imagine a society where there's no stealing. Nobody ever ripped anybody off. Or imagine a society where the expectation wasn't that you worked every single day and that work was what life was all about. Wouldn't it be good if life was about something else? See, God's oneness is liberating It means we're free to know who is the only one worthy of our life and worship. We aren't left second-guessing what the meaning of life is. We aren't left second-guessing what God is like. What God has done for Israel has backed up in their lived experience, has backed up that God is good, faithful, merciful, just. So when we think about God's rules and decrees, is that how you see God? as these rules and decrees being part of loving you by grace with integrity, despite what we've done? Or do we see God as an overbearing, fickle grump that needs appeasing? We know in our lived experience even more than those Israelites from the wilderness did. We know that God the Son came to us in Christ. Philippians chapter 2 who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That cross, that death on a cross which dealt once and for all with our rebellion against God, which separated us from him. That's the God who's making these laws and decrees. And we can say if we know Jesus, we know God. If we know Jesus, we know God. And he's our motivation to love God in obedience with our whole life. That's our next heading, how to love with our whole life. So verse 5 sums up what to do in response to who God is and what he's done. What Jesus describes as the first and greatest commandment. So Deuteronomy 6.5. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, we associate the heart with romantic love, don't we? I give my heart to you. But in Hebrew thought, actually, emotions and romance were more connected with the kidneys. Imagine putting a pair of kidneys on your next Valentine's card. That'd be good. You know, Adam Carter, he might have had kidney stones. You know why? Because he's just so lovey-dovey about Jane. That's why, he's kid- that's why his kidneys are playing up. I love you with all my kidneys, Sean. No, in Hebrew thought, the heart is the center of your will, of your decision-making, your thought. So Moses is saying, love God with all of that. With your will, your thought, your decision-making. And with all your soul. So with the very essence of who you are. All your heart and all your soul. And strengthen there is a kind of an intensifier for those two instructions. So love the Lord with your God with all your heart, exceedingly, muchly, with all your soul, loads and loads, a lot. It's the idea of grunting with strain as you put effort into loving with all your heart and soul. So putting all that together, we see the right response to God, who does everything to love us, is to love him with everything we've got, everything that we are. So what does that look like? I mean, it doesn't mean, I don't think, never doing anything except reading your Bible, singing Christian songs, and going around with a sort of holy glow look about you. And we're suspicious, sorry, we're suspicious of people, aren't we? Of people who seem to be so spiritual that they're of no earthly use. But the danger is that we overreact against that. The danger is you think, well, God's not interested in my work or school or whatever it is, or the mundane things of life. It's kind of given me to get on with that myself. And actually, that's quite the way I like it. We can end up trying to keep secret away parts of our lives from him, justifying ourselves that we, you know, we need to be true to who we really are or something like that. Because deep down, we often think that we're better off without the hassle of giving our, that part of ourselves over to God. Deep down, often, we simply don't want to obey God. But God calls us to love him wholeheartedly and whole-lifedly. And to do that by having his commandments, his words, on our hearts, in our minds, all the time. Now again, that sounds pretty poetic, having them on our hearts. But Moses gives super practical, down-to-earth examples. So verses 7 to 9. Impress them on your children Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, all the time. And verse 8, some Orthodox Jews still do this literally, but Moses is getting across the idea God's word is to be at the forefront of what we do, our hands, in what makes us tick personally, what we're thinking about. It's right between our eyes. And on our door frames, God's word is what we're to run our households by 
and on the gates. So that's referring to like city gates. So God's word is to be central in our thinking about how we live our public life, how we be a citizen, what kind of neighbor we are. So love God with all you are by keeping his word on your heart all the time in every category of life. In the midst of washing up and doing study and doing chores, going shopping, going to uni, work, school, hanging out with friends, when you're out on a date, there's no part of your day when it's not good to have your will directed and centred on, directed by and centred on God's word. So I'm not saying whip out your Bible in the middle of work. You're supposed to be at work. That's what you're getting paid for. Do that. Or in a a school lesson or anything. But make sure you are equipped. Make sure the Bible is bubbling away in the back of your mind. Make sure you've read some to be musing on. To keep God part of your day. uh, And even commit some to memory. I had a friend at Bible college who memorized all the Philippians. A thing to do. That's a good life project, I reckon. Use your memory. I drive my family nuts because I'm like my grandma. Grandma used to be part of um, choirs for a hobby, and she seems to have a song for absolutely everything. You know, Sunday lunch, she'd come, can you pass the salt, please? Can you pass the salt? She had a song for everything. Anything you say would trigger a memory of a song in her head. Wouldn't it be great if we were so saturated with the Bible... We had the same thing happen to us as we go through the everyday circumstances of life. Bible verses popping into our heads instead of songs. What might God do with us and our lives? So, you don't have to have a holy glow, but what we do, what we say, what we think, what we watch, eat, listen to, how we're a friend, a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a mum, a dad, a grandparent, a worker, a spender, a saver, a Facebooker, a student, whatever it is, we do it for the, for the love of God, seeking to do it in the ways that we know he likes from his word. Living for Jesus, denying ourselves, taking up our cross. The trouble is there's so much to distract us from that, isn't there? There's so many other ideas about what we could be doing. And Moses anticipated that for the Israelites, that the blessings they were going to enjoy in the land could also become what captured their hearts and distracts them from God. So verse 10 and 11 get across just how abundant their life in the land is going to be, how they're going to be so well off, really comfortable. Picking up at the end of verse 11. When you eat and are satisfied, you know, they're going to be eat. They're going to eat and be satisfied. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In your plenty, don't forget that you were completely lost, and who it was that rescued you. I mean, it couldn't happen to us, could it? I mean, sure, we're comfortable, but that doesn't mean our hearts could be dulled towards God by our comfort, does it? We're never going to find ourselves making decisions that help our career or our kids, but distracts us from God, keeps us away from church, and dulls our love for him and his people. We wouldn't do that, would we? Couldn't happen to us. We enjoy lots of entertainment and connectivity on our phones, but that's not going to crowd out our time for reading our Bible and praying and hanging out with other Christians, is it? Couldn't happen to us. 
When you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who went to the cross to bring you from death to life. The truth is God deserves our total love. And anyway, every part of our life is better, better off given over to God. So we've seen that we're to love God with all that we are by keeping his word front and center. And we can love God by, just briefly, living out love. Do what is right in God's sight. Do what is right in God's sight. See, Israel are about to head into dodgy false God central, into the promised land. How are they going to keep loving God when all around them, everyone's doing anything but that? Well, verse 13, by fearing God, having healthy, appropriate awe for him. And verse 18, by seeking to do what is right in his sight. Be more interested in what God thinks is the right thing to do. See, Israel are not entering a vacuum. Everyone around them will be coming from a completely different culture and mindset. And we don't live our faith in a vacuum either. Our society and culture has got its own ideas about how the world ticks and what's important. So, for example, our culture's elevated the individual and their freedom to express their individuality as being the most important thing. And it's dangerous not to fulfill that, is the idea. And valuing the individual has lots of upside. You know, there's a kernel of truth in there. But who's to say where to draw the line? You know, who decides, who makes the call when what one individual wants goes against what another individual wants? When those expressions of individualism clash, who's the arbiter of that? Whose moral compass do we use? We need to recognize we're partly the product of our culture that we live in. And much of it is good. Again, don't be whinging about all of it. But right from the start, God tells his people, you have to be different. You have to not fit in with the culture you're in. Even Jesus, from the get-go, didn't fit in with his own culture. Some things about our culture we're going to have to stand up to. Some things are going to make us stick out like a sore thumb. Verse 14, uh, Moses says, Don't follow the gods of the people around you. Uh, following those gods around them was going to become to seem like the most obvious thing to do because it's what everybody else is doing. But, Moses says, don't. God is jealous. He's jealous, not like a bad boyfriend. It means God knows that it's not okay to give our loyalty to anything else. Why? Because they're enslaving. They're bad for us. Because he is good. He knows he's good. And so his commands are good. And therefore, if we stay loyal to him by keeping those commands, verse 18, it will go well for us. He knows that if we give ourselves over to anything other than him, it'll shortchange us, it'll harm us and enslave us. Only God is one. So keep our eyes and our loyalty on him. Excuse me. Finally, another way to love God with all that we are and keep his word on our hearts is to remember God's love. Remember God's love. Sooner or later, you end up wondering, why do I keep going with God? It'd be so much easier not to. Is he worth it? 
And sooner or later, our children work out that most other people don't go to church, that all the friends have the parties on a Sunday morning, and ask, why am I going to church? And Moses has thought of that. He knows what Israel knows about God needs to be passed on to the next generation and to the generation after that. They need to remember everything God has done for them so they don't forget what it means that he is one, that he is for them, that he is good and faithful and merciful. Otherwise, they'll end up just looking at a bunch of rules and thinking, why do I have to stick to all of this? So what is an Israelite to tell his kids when they ask, why are we following all these laws? He's to tell them what it was like before God rescued them, slavery. He's to tell them, that all the world has to offer, the way everyone else says it should work, like Pharaoh in Egypt, is just rubbish compared to their great and powerful God, good God. That they follow God's word because God is good and kind and keeps his promises. And he promises that living his way is the best life there is. Not just a bunch of arbitrary rules. So Israel, to keep this going from generation to generation, were to remember their lived history. And we can remember our lived history to keep us going. We were lost. We were dead in our sins, making up life as we went along. But God the Son became one of us. Jesus, a real human, yet fully God, And Jesus gave himself up to betrayal, suffering and death on a cross, dying in our place to take the judgment for our sins. He rescued us from slavery to sin. And he came to live within us by his spirit. And he's transforming us from the inside out right now. That's our lived history. Lost sin a deserving death. It's a child of God with an eternity of no tears, our certain future. Tell your kids that's why we go to church. That's why we try to obey. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all, Jesus died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 24 and 25 at the end there, they repeat the idea that if they are careful to obey, it will go well for them. And the law included laws about what to do when the law is broken. So God was never expecting perfect obedience to the law because law you know, involves what to do when you've broken it. But responding in this whole life love will be their righteousness. See, the Bible has always been about God's grace first, obedience in response to that. The Bible's always been about faith of the heart, what we really think and mean, showing in obedience, not just obeying rules for the sake of the rules. The obedience we're called to now is obedience, is the obedience of faith in Jesus. Because none of us can claim to have loved God with all our heart, all our soul and all our strength. All of us are guilty of hiding our hearts away from God's word. But when we trust and believe in Jesus, his work on the cross ensures that God looks on us as if we have loved God with all our heart and soul and strength. Always. 
Let me finish with uh, a reminder of our key verse from Colossians that we'll keep, look, we'll keep returning to all year. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's our motivation. To re- that's our thing to remember. That's our thing to motivate us to obedience. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for our story of being brought from death to life. Thank you uh, for your grace to us. I pray you'll help us to drown out all the lies that you're uh, grumpy, needing appeasing, um, and there's just a bunch of arbitrary rules. Please help us to see that your ways are good for us. They bring life, life to the full. And help us to obey our gratitude and of knowing your grace, not to earn your grace. Please help us to be obedient so that we may glorify your name and bring others to know Jesus. Amen.